0: Have you noticed um, in recent years that you cannot buy any product that doesn't come with a warning label? Have you noticed that? Because obviously, people are so happy in this country, right, and you know, if you, t- you buy a box of nails and you drive one of them through your eye, you sue the nail company, right? And so. So there are warnings on all of these products. Whatever you buy, there's all these warning labels. And if you, now that they, they uh, advertise for prescription medication on television, doesn't it just crack you up? It's like 10 seconds of, hey, if you're sick, you should take this medicine. And 40 seconds of, these are the horrible things that are likely to happen to you if you take this medicine. And I'm thinking, you know, this is a medication that cures headaches, but for 80% of the people who take it, your head falls off. And you go, well, maybe I don't need this medication, right? But these warning labels are on everything. I, I, if, you, if you have a blow dryer like, like I do at home, <laughs> if you have a blow dryer at home, um, uh, there's a warning label. I guarantee you, find the box for your blow dryer. I guarantee you there's a warning label. We're used to the one that says, do not use in the bathtub, right? Because like some Einstein figured out that that's a bad idea. Uh, don't use in the bathtub. But do you know what it says now on all blow dryers? As far as I know, they all say the same thing. Do not use while sleeping. Could somebody tell me who's using a blow dryer while they're sleeping? <laughs> Apparently, one person was blow drying their hair, fell asleep, the thing landed on their nose, caught their face on fire, and they sued the the blow dryer company. So we're putting these warning labels on everything. And there are some things I just look at and go, we don't need a warning label. Like If you're so dumb that you would do this, then you probably can't afford to buy the product. So that's how I look at it. But there are some things I wish we could put warning labels on, like babies. When we went home from the hospital with our first child, I'm like, what do you do with this thing? And how do you keep it from, from you know, getting hurt? And so I found a website that actually has you know, helpful hints for parents, warning labels for babies. Here's one of them. If you don't know how to dry the baby, just might, some of you might find that helpful. Here's another one. If you're checking the diaper. This one, not so crucial for the baby, but important for you, I think. There's a way to check diapers. Here's one that isn't about babies. Caution, this sign has sharp edges. Do not touch the edges of this sign. And then at the bottom in very small print, also the bridge is out ahead. So that's good. What else we got? This one was on the box for an iron, and here's what it says. See, it's circled. Do not iron while wearing shirt. So obviously some guy put on his shirt, looked in the mirror, went, this is wrinkly. Like, never mind. I'm sure that Jesus loves him too. But, but, but there are people who obviously need a little bit of extra help with warning labels. Now, listen. For the last couple of months, we've been in this series of messages called Faith Matters, and we're talking about the life of faith and what this looks like, and we're, we're kind of turning a corner right now, and we're coming into the home stretch on this series, and, and one of the things that is intric- intricately woven together with the life of faith is the subject of prayer. Prayer and faith go together, and we've been talking so much about faith and the practicalities of faith and the doctrine and the theology of faith that I want us to now sort of turn the corner and get into the subject of prayer. If we have faith, what will our prayer lives look like? What does it mean to be a person of faith when it comes to prayer? And we're going to talk about that in the next couple of weeks. But I felt really compelled as I was getting ready to start teaching you about prayer that we need to stop before we get there, and we need to have a sermon that is a warning label. It's a big warning label. I'm giving you a warning before we get into the details about prayer because I don't want us to miss this because just like if you use the blow dryer in the bathtub, it doesn't go well. In the same sense, if you don't understand prayer and what it is and what it is not, You could find yourself going down a road that has nothing to do with God's will for your life, and you say, well, okay, that's not that big a deal. Well, yeah, it's a really big deal, but maybe the bigger part of it is that in going down that road, God is not responding in the ways you expect him to respond, and you are now losing your faith. You're becoming mad at God because you're praying in some way that God doesn't seem to be responding to. And you go, well, maybe this God doesn't exist at all, or maybe he doesn't have any power, or maybe he doesn't love me. So I felt it was important for us to just have a warning label sermon and to stop and say, listen, before we get into talking about prayer, we need to clear something up. And we're going to do that in 1 Samuel chapter 4. So hopefully you brought with you a Bible or your cell phone has a Bible on it, or you can look on with somebody or whatever. But go to the book of First Samuel, which is Old Testament. It's uh, fairly early in the Old Testament. You're going to go to First Samuel chapter 4. And as you're turning there, let me just warn you, what we're about to see is a historical event. It's a story that unfolds, and as it unfolds, it is not pretty. It's not easy to listen to. It is not easy to think about. When we get to the end of this story, you're going to be scratching your head going, man, why did he tell us this terrible story? And it is uh, is not rated PG. It is gruesome and ugly and horrifying. And it's all in 1 Samuel chapter 4. So hopefully I have your attention now. Okay, 1 Samuel chapter 4. What you need to know is that the the Philistines and the Israelites were these perpetual enemies. And the Philistines were always bullying the Israelites, basically. And one of the reasons they were able to do that is because they had advanced weaponry. The Philistines had had helmets and shields and chariots and battle axes and swords that were forged steel that, that the Israelites did not have. It was because of their connection with Greece and they had these kinds of Uh, weaponry before the Israelites did. So every time the Philistines invaded, for the most part, one of two things happened. Either the Philistines trounced the Israelites, or God did something miraculous like David and Goliath. But other than that, the Philistines just beat up on the Israelites, and the time had come for them to battle again. And in those days when they would go out to war, one would come from this end and one would come from this end and there would be a valley that they would meet in and they would put a camp over here and a camp over there and there were these sort of unwritten rules of war. You fought during the daytime. You waited till everybody had their army there. You didn't invade until everybody was ready. And then like when the referee said go, then you ran out on the field. You would fight all day. And when the sun went down, everybody stopped fighting some referee probably blew a whistle and you went back to your camp because you didn't fight at night. And then the next day you would come out and fight again. So what we have as we get into 1 Samuel 4 is this battle's about to begin. We'll see it. Pick it up in verse 1. Thus the word of Samuel came to all Israel. Now Israel went out to meet the Philistines in battle and camped beside Ebenezer while the Philistines camped at Aphek. And I looked it up on a map. Ebenezer is here. Aphek is right here. They're like hundreds of yards apart. So basically, you have this big field, and on one side is the Philistines, and on the other side is the Israelites. They're camping, they're getting ready, they're getting their strategy ready, and they're about to go into battle. The battle begins in verse 2. The Philistines drew up in battle array to meet Israel. When the battle spread, Israel was defeated before the Philistines, who killed about, get this, 4,000 men on the battlefield that day. Like, imagine that. That they, they, they gather, they're ready, they go into battle. They have all this history and all these stories to tell about the times when God miraculously gave them victory over much stronger armies. They have faith in God. They're going to go forward and have this battle. They go out and they get so beaten down that when they finally call time out for nightfall they go back to the camp and there are 4,000 Israelite soldiers that don't make it back to camp. It's a horrible, horrible day in Israel's history. So they get back to the camp and at night they begin to say, what went wrong? The, The elders and the and the generals begin to gather together and they begin to think about strategically what they should do differently the next day and how they could keep this from happening again and why did this happen. And, and as I picture this tent where they're all sitting and meeting and talking about this, all of a sudden one guy has an idea and he goes, you know what, we can stop talking about strategy right now because I know exactly what happened. I know why we didn't win. Look at verse uh, 3. When the people came into the camp, the elders of Israel said... Why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? Let us take to ourselves from Shiloh, the ark of the covenant of the Lord, that it may come among us and deliver us from the power of our enemies. They realized in this meeting what they had done wrong. They just went off to war like any other nation. They were just counting on their own strength and their own might. They didn't invite God to even be a part of it. And they had stories in their history where when they marched into battle against great armies, they would put the priests and the um, singers out in the front and they would sing praises to God as they marched into battle. And as they kept God in the center of the whole thing, God would give them these great victories. And they realized, you know, the Ark of the Covenant, if you don't know what the Ark of the Covenant is, in these days, um, the Hebrews carried with them this box, And it was made of wood and it was overlaid in gold and it was very ornate. And on top of it were these these carvings of cherubim, these angelic creatures. And inside the lid of the box, the Ark of the Covenant, inside the lid, there was Aaron's rod. Aaron, the brother of Moses, that God had used for miracles throughout the time of the Exodus. His rod is in in the Ark of the Covenant. There's manna from the time that they were in the wilderness, that food that fell from the sky, right? And it always spoiled the next day. There was some unspoiled manna that stayed inside the Ark of the Covenant as a reminder that God is a God who can provide for our needs. And the actual stone tablets of the Ten Commandments inside. Remember the first ones, the first ones Moses shattered, right? Right? And he went back up, and God gave him new stone tablets with the Ten Commandments. Those are in the Ark of the Covenant, and there are specially trained priests who carry these poles because you can't even touch the Ark. It's so holy because the manifest presence of God dwells upon the Ark of the Covenant. It says that the Shekinah, or the glory of God, actually dwells between the wings of those carved cherubim on top of the Ark, and you had these special priests who were trained to carry the poles and the ark went with them and they would put it in these places and it would be a, a source of worship for them. It was the manifest presence of God. I don't know exactly how that worked or what that looked like, but it was powerful. And if you ever saw Raiders of the Lost Ark, you know how powerful it was, right? Those bad guys touched it and they just became skeletons. That was it, right? So this ark has as like... Um, a reputation. And they realize the ark is in this little town called Shiloh, and we're out here fighting without God. So they go back, and they send some guys to go get the ark. And of course, you can't just say, hey, we're going to borrow the ark for a few days, right? So they go back, and they have to go to the high priest. And the high priest is a guy named Eli, and he's really, really old, but he has these two sons who are now the acting high priests. But they're, they're corrupt and they're wicked, but they are the high priests. And so the two high priests go with the ark, and the ark is about to come into the camp. Look at verse um, 4. So the people sent to Shiloh, and from there they carried the ark of the covenant of the Lord of hosts, who sits above the cherubim. And the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were there with the ark of the covenant. As the ark of the covenant of the Lord came into the camp, All Israel shouted with a great shout so that the earth resounded. Just picture this. They're licking their wounds. They've been there. It's the middle of the night. They're getting ready to go into battle the next day. They're wondering if they're going to survive the next day. And suddenly, they hear a sound. And they look over and they see that there's this processional coming, carrying the Ark of the Covenant, God in a box. And they're bringing him to the battle. God is now going to be with us in our battle. And as they begin to see this, there begins to be a stirring in the camp until finally everybody's craning their neck and they can see what's going on. And they go, the ark, God is with us. And they begin to shout and they begin to jump up and down. It's like, it's like the end of the Super Bowl and your team just won and the stadium is going crazy. And as the stadium goes crazy, the guys on the other side, hear it, and it says the earth shakes from the noise, and the jumping up and down, and they go, what in the heck is going on in their camp? They should not be partying, they just got crushed. What's going on? So look at verse 6. Um, when the Philistines heard the noise of the shout, they said, what does this noise of this great shout in the camp of the Hebrews mean? Then they understood that the ark of the Lord had come into the camp, The Philistines were afraid, for they said, God has come into the camp. And they said, woe to us, for nothing like this has ever happened. When was the last time you said, woe to us? We don't say that, right? So I'm trying to get a um, linguistic, linguistic equivalent to what they were saying here when they said, woe to us. I can't say it in church. It's like the most horrific curse word you can imagine. They're shouting it. They're going, holy, woe to us. <laughs> right? The, this, the God of the Hebrews is in the camp. You, you remember the stories we heard about this God? Look at verse 8. Woe to us! Who shall deliver us from the hand of these mighty gods? These are the gods who smote the Egyptians with all kinds of plagues in the wilderness. And, and, and then here's what I picture. The Philistine warriors are all gathering and it's about to be sunrise and they're getting ready. And they've heard now that the ark is in the Israelite camp. And their leader is out in front of them on a horse. And his face is half blue and half white. And he's given them this speech about this battle that they're about to go into and how they need to be brave. Look what he says, look what he says in verse nine. "'Take courage and be men, O Philistines, "'or you will become slaves to the Hebrews "'as they have been slaves to you. "'Therefore, be men and fight.'" Here's what he's saying. We know about this God. We've heard the stories. Egypt is the greatest military and economic power of the day. And he wiped out Egypt, this God. And and we heard about what he's done in all these lands. And we've heard about all these ways that he's just wiped out the enemies of his people. We know that we can't defeat this God. This is a great and mighty God. We know that we can't defeat him. We're going to die in tomorrow's battle. That's what he's saying. But here's the thing, guys. Dying is better than losing because... You know how we have had them as slaves when we beat them in battle? You know how we treated them? What's going to happen when we become their slaves? You don't want to be slaves to this nation. So here's what I'm calling you to do as your leader. I'm calling you to go out there and fight. You're not going to come home alive, but take as many of them with you as you can. And it's better to be dead than to be their slaves. That's his speech. So the next morning, they get up to go into battle, and everybody, everybody knows what's going to happen. The Israelites know what's going to happen. God is in their midst. The Philistines know what's going to happen. We're going to die, but that's better than being slaves. And they head out into the battle. Pick it up in verse 10. So the Philistines fought, and Israel was defeated. Every man fled to his tent. And the slaughter was very great, and there fell of Israel 30,000 foot soldiers. 30,000. And, verse 11, the ark of God was taken. The ark of God was taken. They didn't just wipe out our soldiers, they stole our God. They took the Ark of the Covenant. The Philistines, the filthiest people on earth, now have the Ark of the Covenant. 34,000 dead in two days. And they took the Ark. And the two sons of Eli, Hothni and Phinehas, died. The high priests are dead. The soldiers are dead. Israel's defeated. The Ark is stolen and the high priests are dead." That is not how I expected that to go. That is not how Israel expected it to go, not even how the Philistines expected it to go. I mean, there, there's, a, there's a, a formula for this, right? You, you first have to admit your need for God, right? And then you have to pray and tell God what to do. And you have to believe that God's going to do it. That's what they did. They followed the formula. They went and they got God in his nice, tidy little box. And they brought God in a box to their lives. And they said, okay, God, do your thing. And somehow, way, for some reason, God didn't show up. God didn't do what they wanted him to do. You ever been in a situation as a, as a follower of Jesus where you just want your money back? And you just go, you know what? Nothing that's happening in my life right now reflects these promises I've heard in Scripture. I this great God who loves me and has all this power and answers prayers and asking you shall receive and seeking you shall find. And I've been praying my guts out. Where is God? If this is what faith looks like, I don't need it. You ever followed the steps they taught you in Sunday school only to find out that it didn't happen the way that it happened in Sunday school? This this story, this situation, this is about as bad as it could get, right? Oh, no, not close. Look at verse 12. Now a man of Benjamin ran from the battle line and came to Shiloh the same day with his clothes torn and dust on his head. When he came, behold, Eli, that's the high priest, was sitting in his seat by the road, eagerly watching because his heart was trembling for the ark of God. So the man came to tell it in the city, and the whole city cried out. When Eli heard the noise of the outcry, he said, What does this noise of this commotion mean? Then the man came hurriedly and told Eli. Now Eli was 98 years old, And his eyes were set so that he could not see. The man said to Eli, I am one who came from the battle line. Indeed, I escaped from the battle line today. And he said, how did things go, my son? Then the one who brought the news replied, Israel has fled before the Philistines. There's also been a great slaughter among the people. And your two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, are dead. And the ark has been taken. When he mentioned the ark of God, Eli fell off his seat backward beside the gate, and his neck was broken, and he died. For he was old and heavy, thus he had judged Israel for 40 years. Now his daughter-in-law, Phinehas' wife, was pregnant. Finally, something upbeat. His daughter-in-law was pregnant and about to give birth. And when she heard the news that the ark of God was taken, that her father-in-law and her husband had died, she kneeled down and gave birth, for her pains came upon her. About the time of her death, she died during childbirth. The women who stood by her said to her, Do not be afraid, for you have given birth to a son. But she did not answer or pay attention. And she called the boy Ichabod, saying, The glory has departed from Israel. Do you have any friends named Ichabod? Any of you ever think of naming your child Ichabod? You know why? It means no glory. She named her child, the glory of God is no longer in Israel. And then she died. She said, the glory has departed from Israel for the ark of God was taken. And that is the end of the chapter. There is no story about a superhero coming in and fixing it all. There is no story about how um, this was all a bad dream and in reality we really won the battle. This is the story. They followed the Sunday school rules. They brought God in his box and they put him in the middle of the battle and everything went terribly wrong. What the heck? Here's the problem. Sometimes followers of God, we lose sight of the fact that He's God, and we begin to think that He's a cosmic genie, and we rub His lamp and He does what we tell Him to do. And God says, I don't play that way. Here's the deal. He's God. I'm not. And the all-too-common result when we have this God is a cosmic genie idea is that we rub the lamp, it doesn't work out the way we thought it would, and then we come to the conclusion that either God is not faithful, or God cannot be trusted, or God doesn't love me, or God doesn't have any power, or God doesn't exist, or whatever. So that's why I'm putting a warning label on this. Because in the next few weeks, we're going to talk about Getting with our God and calling on His name. And we're going to talk about what prayer really looks like and how God has a plan and how He does answer prayer. But before we get to any of that, we have to understand something. All the promises of God that come in Scripture, they come in a context. And the context is a relationship of love and obedience. It is as we walk by faith, as we walk in obedience to God, that God responds through His promises. But His promises come as if-then statements. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven. Then I will heal their land. See, If you look at so many of the promises of God, you will find that they are always in Scripture in the context of a loving relationship of worship and obedience. I'm not saying God's not going to answer your prayers. Here's what I'm saying. He called you into a relationship with Him, and it's in that context that He answers prayer. And sometimes, I mean, we just talked about this with what the deciders have been going through. Sometimes. He still doesn't answer the way you want him to. and I don't know what to do with that. But here's what I won't do with it. I won't say he's not God. I won't say he's not faithful. I won't say he doesn't love me because he's God and I'm not. And the one thing we have to know is that as we enter into the life of prayer, it cannot be about me telling God what to do. And, God expe- and, and expecting then God to do what I tell him to do. You know, in 1 Samuel chapter 2, we won't look it up, but in 1 Samuel chapter 2, God told Eli, He said, I'm going to bless your family as you follow me and serve as a priest. I'm going to make your sons priests and their sons and their sons and their sons. And there's going to be generations of priests from your family as you follow and serve me. But already one generation in, his two sons had turned against them and they became wicked priests. And now they're dead, and Eli is dead, and Eli has one heir, and his name is Ichabod. See, God doesn't take orders from us, He's not a genie in a bottle. He's not a big vending machine in the sky, and He's not your errand boy. He's our God, the God of the universe, and He loves us. In the context of that relationship of love and obedience, He longs to hear our prayers, and He longs to answer them according to His will. But make no mistake, God doesn't take orders from you or me, and He will not be used by us for our own agenda. If we we can learn anything simply, from 1 Samuel chapter 4, and what a tragic story it is, we can learn this. As the ark of God is carried off into the land of the Philistines, we can know this. God would rather be with people who fear Him than people who try to use Him. See, the response of a follower of God is to look up and say, God, you are worthy. But when you are worthy gets exchanged For you are useful, then it has somehow ceased to be the life of faith and is no longer about worship and it's no longer about God. And that will be the time that the glory of God is no longer dwelling in the center of your camp. And so are we gonna pray? Yeah, we're gonna pray. But as we do, we're gonna remember this. If you look in the New Testament and listen to the words of Jesus, literally dozens of times he speaks these two words, follow me, right? He says it in all four gospels again and again. Follow me, follow me, follow me, follow me, follow me. You can't avoid it. It's all over the four gospels. Follow me. You know what he doesn't say? You know what you won't find anywhere? Use me. He doesn't say, listen, go about your life, do your thing, and when you need me, use me. Because some of us see God, we've, we've been taught to treat God like he's some sort of an attack dog that we keep in a cage and we just give him a little bit of food and we rattle his cage now and then because when we need him, we're going to open that gate and we're going to go, sick him, God, sick him, God, come on, God, sick him. And then when God does our bidding, we're going to pat him on the head and say, good God, good God, and we're going to put him back in our cage and he's going to stay there until we need him next time. You go, really? They carried God in a box? We do the same thing. As we pray, as we walk by faith, let us always remember our God is an awesome God. He is seated higher than the heavens. His ways are not our ways, His thoughts are not our thoughts, and He is not on our agenda. You said, well, the Scripture says God is for us. He is for you. He loves you in the context of that love relationship. That involves our trust and obedience. And when we begin to order God around, that's when we can be sure the glory of God has departed from our camp. Mm -hmm. Let us instead follow the example of Jesus crying out to His Father in the Garden of Gethsemane. Please, please, please answer my prayer in the affirmative. Don't make me do this.